Welcome back to the Hemingway List Podcast. It's the best one you've ever known of. That was Welcome to the Show by Andrew Lewis. Hi, I'm your host, Andrew Lewis. We're talking about Book 2, Chapter 23, Close Call, but Mission Accomplished. Kutili said, Andrew Lewis, that's me, I know what you mean. I dreaded reading this chapter as well, expecting it to be dull like the last one, but Stendhal's again surprises me positively with how fun and dynamic today's chapter was. I'm starting to think he's doing it deliberately, catching us off guard after boring passages. Could be the case. Um, funny rant yesterday. Well, funny. Not funny for you guys to have to listen to me rant. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. Sometimes I get ranty. You've probably noticed. I think part of it was um, I'm editing a book for a like a kind of a friend, friend of a friend. Um, and, you know, it's paid editing work. I'm happy to be doing it. And he's done really well. It's his first uh, book he's ever written. But it is very, very full of repetitive language, which is kind of the mark of the amateur writer, is that they they try to describe things in one way, then another, then another, then another. And it just ends up being so much obsolete language, you know, repetitive um, synonyms, adjectives. And so after a long day of editing that, which is you know, my pleasure to do. Then reading that chapter, not yesterday's chapter, but the day before, the one that I ranted about in yesterday's episode, um, I think I just, I, I was done with reading stuff that wasn't, you know, well refined for my entertainment. <laughs> it was a long day of tedious reading, I should say. Now, my friend's book that I'm editing that has every right to be tedious. It's a first draft, unedited, of a first attempt of a novel. So, you know, anyone's first draft is going to have some tedious language in it. That's all good. That's what I'm here to do. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It just left me, the whole thing between that and the chapter that we read on the Hemingway list, it had exhausted my my patience for reading for that day. Um. I crave sometimes just to read something great. Some, not great, not even great as in like we're reading great literature now. Um, maybe not great's not the word. Something just like fun, I suppose. You know? It doesn't have to be great. It doesn't have to even have to be good. I just want to read something that's like, like, like the pop song of books, you know? Like the action movie of books. Um, so Terry Pratchett is good for that. Not that that's a pop song, not that that's like, you know, trite or anything like that. It's, but it's just designed to just be fun to read. Something goofy, silly, exciting, funny, um, easily digestible, fast paced, short chapters. So, um, you know, I'm open to recommendations. Uh, but I think that's part of the course because, I mean, I'm et- I edit hundreds if not thousands of short stories per year written by students, which is part of also part of my job, and I love it. You know, that is the job. If I could choose anything in the world to do, that's what I would want to do. But, you know, when you edit a thousand stories written by 11-year-olds, 
you do start to crave something that's a little bit more polished and uh, expert, expertly written. Uh, what am I talking about? What am I? No, I'm just getting so sidetracked. Okay, let's talk about the actual chapter. Star 415 said, All this suspicious and distrustful mind uh, ended up being useful for Julian. He is wasting his time as a secretary. He should work as a spy. Yeah, he's uh, he's good at it. You know, he's, he's suspicious enough. He's paranoid enough. He's gutsy enough. You know, we know that he can fake it till he makes it and blend into sort of any anywhere. Um, that's what he's done this whole novel. So, and obviously he's got the gift of being able to memorize secret messages rather than having to have them written down. So he would make a great spy. Plus he wants to prove himself as something of a warrior um, and a spy, you know, not necessarily uh, needs violence, but he is sort of working for you know, the same cause in some ways. Anyway, <clears throat> I think it'd be a great job for him now that you mention it. Um, I couldn't remember who is Abe Castandi. Where did Julian meet him? Swim said the mama fish. He said, Abe Castanidi is a spy, a Jesuit henchman of Frillia. He is a menace to Julian in the seminary and on their secret mission. Laura Wystitch said, at the beginning of the chapter, I was prepared for another boring one discussing the meeting. Then it got so much more interesting. This story sure has a lot of twists. It did kind of start off a bit boring. But, you know, as soon as he left that meeting, the rest of the chapter was fantastic. Really good. So, let us continue. The Red and the Black. You know... Of all the books on this list, I didn't really... I had no idea what The Red and the Black was about. But from the title, I thought, oh, this is going to be... I thought it was going to be one of the sort of densest, most difficult reads on the list. You know, I thought it was going to be super political and super French. <laughs> but uh, it's proving to be actually quite a fun and fairly well-paced book. Chapter 20 is called Strasbourg and it goes like this infatuation you have all love's energy all its capacity to endure sorrow only its delightful enchantments its gentle joys are beyond your sphere as I watched her sleeping I couldn't tell myself with all her angelic beauty and sweet frailties frailties she is all mine here delivered into my power is she whom heaven is in its mercy created to enchant a man's heart, owed by Schiller. <clears throat> Obliged to spend a week in Strasbourg, Julian tried to distract himself by dreams of military glory. <clears throat> Excuse me. And devotion to his country. He was... Then, in love, he had no notion in his harrowed soul he found Matilda alone, absolute mistress of his happiness, as of his imagination. He needed the whole strength of his character to save himself from despair. To think of anything not related to Mademoiselle de la Mole was beyond him. In the past, ambition and the simple triumphs of vanity had been able to distract him from the emotions inspired by Madame de Renal. 
Matilda absorbed everything she pervaded his entire future. In this future, Julian foresaw failure on every side, this being whom he have whom we have seen so presumptuous at Verrier's, so full of pride, had sunk into an absurd excess of humility. 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 Three days ago he would have happily done away with Abe Castanide, yet in Strasbourg if a child had contradicted him or would have said that the, he would have said that the child was right. In thinking back to the adversaries, the enemies he had met in his life, he now always found that he, Julian, had been in the wrong. That powerful imagination, which previously had been constantly engaged in painting his brilliant future success, now became his implacable enemy. The total solitude of a traveller's life augmented the power of this gloomy vision. What a treasure a friend would have been. But, demanded Julian of himself, is there a single heart that beats for me? And even if I had a friend, would I not be bound in honour to perpetual silence? Dolefully he wandered out on horseback to the neighbourhood of Kell. This is a small town on the banks of the Rhine, immortalised by de Sakes and Guvion Saint-Cyr. A German peasant showed him the little streams, the tracks, the islets in the Rhine, on which <clears throat> the bravery of these great generals has conferred a famous name. Julian, guiding his horse with the left hand, checked his, with his right the superb map the, that ornaments Marshal St. Cyr's memoirs. A joyful cry made him raise his head. It was Prince Korosov, the London friend who, a few months ago, had unveiled to him the first principles of the higher forms of foppery. Faithful to that great mystery, Korosov, who had uh, arrived in Strasbourg only the evening before, had been an hour in Kell, and never read a line about the siege in 1796, began to explain the whole affair to Julian. The German peasants stared with astonishment. He understood enough French to make out the gross blunders into which the prince fell. Julian's impression was a thousand miles away from that of the peasant. He regarded the gorgeous young man with admiration and marvelled at his grace on horseback. How blithe a spirit, said he to himself. How fine the fit of his trousers. How elegantly his hair is cut. Oh, alas, if I'd been like that, perhaps she wouldn't have been seized by such aversion after being in love with me for three days. When the prince had completed his siege of Kell... You've the look of a Trappist, he said to Julian. You're really overdoing the principle of gravity I taught you in London. Perhaps a melancholy air is not the best form. It is an air of ennui that is required. If you're sad, then there must be something you lack, something you haven't succeeded at. It's showing yourself to be inferior. If you look bored, or on the other hand, the fellow who has tried vainly to please you is inferior. Try to understand, my dear boy, how grave a mistake this is. Julian threw an isu to the peasant who had been listening open-mouthed. Good, said the prince, that shows grace, a noble disdain. Excellent. And he set his horse to a gallop. Julian followed him, filled with mindless admiration. Ah, if I had been like that, I, she would not have preferred Cruce Noirs to me. 
The more his reason was shocked by the prince's ridiculous aspects, the more he scorned himself for not admiring them, and thought himself unhappy to not possess them. Self-disgust could go no further. As they re-entered Strasbourg, the prince, seeing him genuinely depressed, asked, as well can it be, my dear chap, that you have lost all your money, or are you in love with some little actress? Actress. The Russians imitate French manners, but always at a distance of 50 years. At the moment, they are in the age of Louis XV. Humorous remarks about love brought in response tears to Julian's eyes. Why don't I ask this amiable man's advice? He suddenly asked himself. Why, yes, my dear fellow, he said to the prince. Here in Strasbourg you find me very much in love and even forsaken. A delightful woman living in a nearby town has dropped me after three days of passion and the reversal is killing me. He described Matilda's actions and character to the prince using using assumed names. Don't bother to go on, said Korosov. So as to give you confidence in your doctor, I shall finish off the confession. This young woman's husband rejoices in a huge fortune, or better, she belongs to one of the noblest families in the region. There must be something that she is proud of. Julian nodded. He no longer dared speak. Very good, said the prince. There are three rather bitter pills you must swallow without delay. One, every day you must see Madame... What is she called? Madame de Dubois. What a name, cried the prince, bursting into laughter. But I do apologise. What that's sublime of you. The thing is to see Madame de du- Madame de Dubois every day. Above all, don't seem to her to be cold or hurt. Remember the grand principle of your age. Do the opposite of what what is expected. Behave precisely as you did the week before you were honoured with her favours. Ah, I was calm enough then, cried Julian despairingly. I thought I was taking pity on her. Moths are singed in the candle flames, the prince went on. It's a saying as old as the hills. Two, see you, you see her every day. Three, you pay court to some other woman in the same set, but without giving this the appearance of a passion, do you see? I won't pretend that your role isn't a difficult one. You're acting a comedy, and if you are seen to be acting, you're lost. She's so full of intelligence and I have so little. I've sunk, said Julian sadly. No, you're simply more in love than I thought. Madame de Dubois is deeply preoccupied with herself, as are all women who heaven is has given too high a rank or too much money. Instead of looking at you, she looks at herself and therefore she does not even know you. During the two or three spasms of love she has allowed herself on your behalf, she has, with a great effort of the imagination, seen in you the hero of her dreams, not you as you really are. But what the devil, my dear Sorel, these are elementary points. Are you a complete novice? Pablo, let's go into this shop. There's a charming black cravat. It could almost have been made by John Anderson of Burlington Street. Give me the pleasure of accepting it and chucking away for good that sordid black string you have tied around your neck. Now oh, that's it, continued the prince, as they issued from the shop of the leading haberdasher in Strasbourg. What society does your Madame de Dubois move in? What society does your Madame de Dubois move in? Great heavens, what a name. Please don't be angry, my dear sir. It overwhelmed me. Well, to whom will you pay court? to a first-rate prude, the daughter of an immensely wealthy stocking merchant. She has the most beautiful eyes in the world, and I find them infinitely attractive. 
She is certainly of the highest rank around here, but in the midst of all her grandeur, she blushes and becomes totally confused if someone happens to mention trade and shops, and unfortunately her father is one of the best-known merchants in Strasbourg. So if someone talks of trade, said the prince laughing, you can be sure your beauty is thinking of herself and not of you. This absurdity is perfectly divine and extremely handy. It will stop you having to seem stupid for a single moment into her lovely eyes. Success is guaranteed. Julian was thinking of Madame la Marchale de Favacuve, who much frequented the Hotel de la Mole. She was a beautiful outsider who had married the Marshal a year before his death. Her whole life seemed to have no other object than to bury the fact that she was the daughter of a man of commerce, and in order to amount to something in Paris, she had put herself at the head of the party of virtue. Julian admired the prince sincerely. What would he not have given to have his affectations? The talk between the two friends went on and on. Korosov was entranced. Never had a Frenchman listened to him for so long. So at last I have reached the stage, the delighted prince said to himself, of being listened to when instructing my tutors. So we are completely agreed, he reiterated to Julian for the tenth time, not even a hint of passion when, in Madame de Dubois' presence, you are talking to the Strasbourg stocking merchant's beautiful young daughter. By way of contrast, use flaming passion when writing to her, reading a well-written love letter, is a prude's sovereign pleasure. It is a moment of release. She is not playing a part. She dares listen to her heart. Two letters a day, therefore. Never, never, said the demoralized Julian. I'd sooner be ground to pieces in a mortar than compose three phrases. I'm a zombie, my dear chap. You must not expect anything from me. Let me lie by the roadside and die. But who said you had to compose three phrases in my writing, in case I have six volumes of love letters in manuscript? They are for all varieties of female character. I have some of the strictest virtue. Wasn't it Kaliski who paid court to Richmond La Therese? You know where I mean. Three leagues from in London to the prettiest Quakeress in the whole of England. When he left his friend at two in the morning, Julian was less miserable. The following day, the prince called in a copyist. Two hours later, Julian had 53 carefully numbered love letters tailored to the most sober and sublime virtue. There are not fifty-four of these, said the prince, because Kaliski got himself dismissed. But what does it signify being ill-treated by a stocking merchant's daughter when what you really desire is to work on the heart of Madame de Dubois? Every day they rode out on horseback. The prince was mad about Julian, not being able to think how to testify to his sudden friendship. He ended by offering him the hand of one of his cousins, a rich Moscow heiress. And once married, he added, with my influence... And cross you where you will be a colonel within two years. But this cross wasn't awarded by Napoleon, very far from it. What does that matter? replied the prince. Didn't he invent it? It's still by far the finest in Europe. Julian was on the point of accepting, yet his duty summoned him back to the residence of the important personage. When saying goodbye to Korosorov, he promised to write. He obtained the answer to the secret note he had carried and hurried back to Paris, but no sooner had he been alone for two successive days than it seemed to him to torment worse than death to leave France and Matilda. I won't marry the millions Korsaroff offers me, he said to himself, but I will follow his advice. 
After all, the art of seduction is his specialty. He has thought of nothing else but such affairs for more than fifteen years, for he is thirty now. One could not say he lacks intelligence. He is subtle and knowing. Enthusiasm and poetry are an impossibility in such a character. He is acting for another, even more reason that he is unlikely to go wrong. It must be done. Then I will pay court to Madame de Fervaques. It is true that she may perhaps bore me a little, but I will be lo looking into lovely eyes that are so like those eyes that have loved me best in all the world. She is an outsider. It will be a new type of character to observe. I'm insane. I'm drowning. I must follow a friend's advice and not think for myself at all. All right, there we go. There's another chapter down. Have your say at the subreddit. Thanks very much for listening, and I'll see you tomorrow.